Welcome to Fan Drive Times. Justin Cuthbert and Ailish Forfar, uh, Sports at 590. The Fan, happy to be with you. A little 3 p.m. start time is a joy for us as we uh, enjoy the last couple of days here before back to the morning grind. It's been lovely. Yeah, and a little bit different responsibility for us here, of course. You know, three, three to five different than the morning show, uh, but the biggest series of the Blue Jays season Ooh. happening kind of while we're teeing things up mm-hmm. just a little bit. Like it's the pre-pre-show because Blair and Barker featuring just Jeff Blair, I believe this week. It's just the Blair show. Is the pre-game show, but we're the pre-pre. So there's a little bit of uh, responsibility, I think, for us with the biggest series of the Blue Jays season to date starting tonight. I'll tell you what the biggest adjustment is. A four minute and 55 second turnover between each show like we got a rip no time in here for chat. we don't have the three or 40 45 minute preview that we usually have when we come in, in the morning when there's nobody in there but you get a quick turnaround like sam mckee and jesse rubinoff were just in here and we're trying to have a quick chat i'm trying to wipe down their dust that they left behind I'm trying to locate headphones Fine, like, it's an it's, ordeal it's rapid it's fire too mu- in here. it's too much for four and a half minutes no. for being honest but we made i was literally plugging in my headphones as the music was starting so here we are uh we're fired up we're ready to see the blue jays start as you mentioned probably the biggest series of the season but you know they're going to get bigger and bigger as we scoreboard watch down the stretch here but this has been a team that we have i think quietly respected from afar and now they're like your Achilles heel quietly eh? like yeah I think because we're obviously Blue Jays fans we cover the Blue Jays but what the Orioles have done over the last little while has been maybe what Blue Jays fans have wanted from their team to do and you're watching this young fun upstart team with talent that is going to hopefully be generational for their franchise come Mm. out of really a quiet nowhere to be the top of the ALEs to be a team that you want to replicate your franchise on and now the the Blue Jays haven't had success against them this year as we know they're two two and eight this season and they're not very good against ALEs teams in general but you watch the Orioles with a little bit of a respect level but now you got to erase that because the Blue Jays really need to at least take two or three this series yeah they're they've been you know you're not going to get two and eight back right you can't in this short set uh get all of that back uh so it's just about making progress but yeah you're right they've been a major source of frustration I, I think for you know the reasons being twofold one being mm-hmm. that two and eight record of they've owned the Blue Jays this year they're the part of the reason why they're in the position they're in now you could look at the entire American League East and kind of uh, reach that conclusion where it's like, yeah, if you'd improved your record inside the division, things wouldn't be as, I don't want to say dire. I don't think we're dire, but, you know, the concern level is pretty high right now, mm-hmm. given where the Blue Jays are currently outside of the playoff spot with around 40 games to go. Uh, but the other part of that is, yeah, you've been, you were supposed to be the Orioles, right? Mm -hmm. You were supposed to be the team that was going to knock the Yankees and Red Sox off the pedestal, dominate the American League East for three, four, maybe five years, have all the young talent that changes the dynamic in a division that's been owned by two teams forever. And when it wasn't those two teams, it was that Rays team that was timing it up every five years or so because they were able to re- coop some talent uh, in their the cyclical nature in which they uh, compete in the American League East. So the Baltimore Orioles have sort of come out of nowhere. We know and we've understood for some time that they were building something. It's just it, what they were building was a little stronger, I think, than anyone really anticipated. And now if you're the Blue Jays and you're a fan of the Toronto Blue Jays, you're looking around thinking, hey, did we just get lapped by the mm-hmm. team that was supposed to come after us? And 
this is, you know, you, you can't really prove anything otherwise this week. You can't like say, hey, no, we're, we're, we're still on level terms. In fact, we are the team that is, uh, is to beat still in the American League East or currently in the American League East. I don't think you can really prove anything, but that doesn't matter. You, it's, this isn't about proving something to Baltimore. This is about winning two of three games because if you're not winning series at this point, you are losing ground uh, against the American League West in the three teams that are suddenly uh, in a race with you for that final wild card spot, or maybe one of the final two wild card spots uh, in the American League. So it's not about the Orioles; it's about the Blue Jays this week. It's about the Blue Jays winning two or three. All that other stuff, compare, contrast, Big Brother, Little Brother, timelines, so on and so <laughs> forth. To me, it doesn't matter. They got to win two games. That's really the bottom line. Yeah, uh, full game back now with Seattle winning seven straight. Uh, they've got the earlier, easier schedule ahead. We teed this up yesterday, so there's not going to be uh, more than a very, very thin line of mar- uh, margin of error here for the Blue Jays. But tonight, they've got uh, the the best guy in their rotation right now on the mound. You see Kikuchi, who leads uh, the lowest ERA in the MLB since the All Star break with a one two nine. Uh, he's up against uh, Rodriguez on the mound. The Blue Jays have an advantage with all three of their starters in this three-game series. So you cannot set yourself up for success better than that. You're coming off an off day on Monday, so you're well-rested. You're getting, you're getting guys back from injury like Bo Bichette and others, but of course Bo Bichette's the, the main story in terms of how he can turn around this team. You're well-rested, and you've got your, your ace right now. You say Kikuchi is your ace right now, if you look at the last month or so up on the mound to start this three-game set, followed by Gosman, who's really your, supposed to be your ace, and then Barrios. So yeah. if you're looking at the way to set yourself up to win two or three, that's it. And it's, okay, so if you're pitching and your bullpen is rested, what needs to happen next? You need to have more offense. And we've talked about this time and time again all season long, but if the Blue Jays want to beat the Orioles, who have a lot of offense, they just got to dial it in at the plate and find a way to replicate what they did on Sunday when they had five home runs, Mm -hmm. maybe give us like a fraction of that. Yeah. A fraction of that would be uh, at least a step in the right direction. You may (laughs) need just slightly more given how good the Orioles have been. But again, you mentioned it. These are the blue Jays have their horses. Kikuchi Gosman Barrios is exactly what you want Mm -hmm. in terms of how it's lined up for the biggest series of the year. And you're going to lean on those three. Those three have to set the tone. If you're going to win two of three, not all of them have to be great, I guess, because you get the one mulligan in there. Uh, but you're going to have to have two really good pitching performances at the very minimum, and maybe three because a, a pitching performance isn't all you need to win a baseball game at this high of a level and at this time of year. But there's one more player, and and we all know who that player is that I have circled for this series, and it's Bo Bichette. I, I mean, say Ryan Mountcastle. <laughs> I guess Ryan Mountcastle. <laughs> Those two go head to head. Well, if, if, and, and this is this is kind of where I'm going at. Like Ryan Mountcastle has made himself a legend for the Orioles in the context of playing the Toronto Blue Jays, right? I think that's fair in the in this in this one space. And you know, he's obviously a productive guy, but against the Blue Jays, he's a monster. He's a legend. He's pretty much unstoppable. And since Bo Bichette came back to the lineup, of course, two victories, two for two. It's been very, very important. He's got the quote beforehand saying, hey, we Mm. need to be fearless. I mean, his return has obviously sparked something in that you had a little bit bit of an offensive outburst on Sunday and the two victories, as I mentioned. But is it time for Bo Bichette to completely and totally have his moment? Is it time for him to be Ryan Mountcastle in this series <laughs> where he is unstoppable and he is the driving force? I mean, I think if I'm looking at the balance of the season, if I'm looking at objectives, I'm looking at the task at hand here. If Bo Bichette has his best six weeks as a Major League Baseball player, you're going to make the playoffs. 
And you and maybe it, maybe he's prime for that. Maybe this is prime to be that season for Bobachet where yeah, he's taking a little bit of a backseat until then, until mm. this point. But this year, everyone's on board saying this is firmly his team. And now with that knowledge, with him speaking out, him returning and having the immediate success, maybe that that's just completely and totally understood from everyone, including Bo Bichette, and he takes this team on a ride over the next six weeks. You know, it's important for him and for everyone to produce in this series, of course. But I'm looking at this as an opportunity for him to not solidify what's already been solidified because, again, it's been kind of solidified. This Mm -hmm. is his team. But to carry his team through some murky waters and a real tenuous situation here with the Blue Jays having to beat out one of the Mariners, Astros, or Texas Rangers in order to get to the playoffs. All three of those teams have been elite pretty much, or at least playing at elite level uh, for large periods of this season. The Mariners have caught up. The Rangers were that standard early on, and the Astros are the Astros. They're going to have to beat one of those teams, and in order for them to do it, I think a guy like Bo Bichette has to do not only what he's been doing all season long, but establish himself as a guy who can absolutely carry a team on his back and lead them to the playoffs. I think that can start tonight with Bo Bichette. I think he set himself up for it. And we know that he's been in the type of form where he can do something like that. Don't we ask the same thing time and time again with Toronto sports stars, Austin Matthews and Mitch Marner, to do it when it matters, to lead their team, to be, you know, walk the walk, talk the talk, be the young stud that you want on your franchise. You got Scotty Barnes and Pascal, and he's a little bit older, but still. Nonetheless, like, this is where Bo can really, as you mentioned, solidify himself as this team MVP. We know that. But be more than that. Like, he was living in Vladimir Gordon's shadow for a while. When mm-hmm. Vladdy came and Bo came, it was kind of the two-headed monster, right? Vladdy and Bo, Vladdy and Bo. But it isn't Vladdy and Bo anymore. It's Bo's team. Bo has been the MVP. Bo has been the driver of offense. He's been much improved on defense. And now he's sounding like a vocal leader, which is something that is different this time around. Last year, he... He had that bad stretch last year and bad body language. He didn't talk much. And then remember when he had that one month where it was like Bo's month, Bo Mm -hmm. Timber almost? Yeah. He was on the media. He was on our station. He was chatting because he was excited to be producing but also leading. And this year he's back at a a very important time when this team has to win a hell of a lot of games on the stretch. And if that's the time that he's peaking and he's at his top of his game, it couldn't line up any better. But when Bo's playing well, Bo's vibing well, and you've got to hope that that rubs off on the other half of the two-headed monster, which hasn't looked that way this year. And I know maybe that it's tough to always pair those two in a conversation, but they're young and they have a big opportunity to be a part of this franchise moving forward. And one has certainly seemed like the right choice and one is a pending decision, and that's Vladdy. So if Bo is going to do something, this is the time to really like hone in that this is my team and I don't need to be in the same sentence as the other guy. Like, it's mine. Yeah, I mean, the eternal competition thing uh, is interesting because I feel like it could work for, it can work against, it can be awkward, it can be just really, really positive at all Mm -hmm. times. Like for other situations, other teams, other players, it functions differently. For for Bo Bichette and Vlad, it's felt like it hasn't been beneficial to Bo, really, at all. Mm -hmm. Like it just, it feels like it's been some sort of weight. And there's other things maybe we're projecting onto it. Maybe Vlad's a factor. Maybe the money thing was the factor, the arbitration thing. And we know they cleared that up, signing that three-year deal, which I want to talk about a little bit because I think that puts the Blue Jays in a bit of a precarious position, Mm. them signing that contract when they did. Anyway, uh, Bo, Bo, it seems like, has been a little bit more affected by those things, maybe affected by the fact that he was running an internal race before he was really established as the major leaguer that he's 
come into over the last, I guess we'll say, 12 months. He had the great end to his season last year. He's had a brilliant season to this point. He's pretty much firmly established himself as, hey, one of the most productive players at his position in Major League Baseball, maybe the guy who's going to lead or threaten to lead the American League in hits every single year. He is one of the best players in baseball. He's firmly established himself as that this year. And now I think he can take a next step, maybe because, in part, Vlad's sputtering. Yeah. And it's like, hey, I don't have to look over my shoulder anymore. I don't have to talk about, hey, is it going to be Vlad they keep or me? Mm. He can just take this opportunity, which sounds a little simple or or a little strange because they should be trying to work in concert. But if it is coming down to Bo, maybe that's something he'll relish and run with. And it feels like that's not a stretch to say. It feels like this is a situation where Bo will relish and potentially thrive in, where it is on his shoulders, and he can be both the physical and vocal leader, being the best player and the guy people are looking to, not for inspiration, but just for that push in the right direction. I mean, this team was in was spinning its tires a little bit. Eight mm-hmm. and eight in his absence. He comes back and things click. That means something to a guy like Bo Bichette, I think. I, I think this is a real opportunity for him to take advantage of the spot he's put himself in with a really, really good 12 months. Starts tonight, uh, 707 first pitch on the road in Baltimore. Uh, Blue just have 37 games remaining, and they're all going to matter a lot because, as we saw last night, Blue Jays not in action. Seattle wins another one. They're now a game back from them. Um, Seattle has an easy schedule ahead. We'll, we'll chat with John Morosi, actually, um, after we take our first break here, talk about the way that the Blue Jays might have set themselves up for success this three-game series, but also how we're going to be scoreboard watching the entire stretch here. Like, you can't – you got to keep your eyes on your own page, but at the same time, you need to be aware that – Every at-bat matters. Every inning matters. Every pitch you throw matters. And every um, opponent matters, too. Like, looking at that White Sox team, like, I don't I don't even think they can. They belong on the same ballpark no, it bad. with the Mariners right no. now. Like, expecting the Mariners to lose a game versus, uh, like, I'm not holding my breath on that. Louis Castillo, I was reading this to you off air, just having fun with the White Sox last night through 47 consecutive fastballs. Just 47 in a row. That's how good they are and how bad the White Sox are that they nobody even caught on. He threw 47 fastballs in a row. And that's like a common baseball trope, too, where it's like, okay, you're, you're pitching with a lead. It's just throw, Just throw strikes. And, like, he takes that literally where it's just like, okay, I'll throw, not, like, not all 47 hit the strike zone, I'm sure. But it was like, I don't even need to overthink this because I have stuff. I'm Luis Castillo, mm-hmm. and you guys can't touch me. So it's I'm not even going to overthink it. I'm just going to pump fastballs down the middle <laughs> because we are so far ahead and you guys aren't catching. There's there's a vibe right now. We were talking yeah. about yesterday with the Mariners, but that adds to it, right? Like Julio Rodriguez doing his thing, putting up five runs, I think, in the first inning, just jumping all over the White Sox. And then having your pitcher, your ace, just go up there and pump 50 almost strikes or uh, fastballs in a row and not have it like even affect the scoreboard whatsoever. Like this is, they're playing with an utmost confidence right now. They're not going to stop losing. You're right. You have to scoreboard watch, but more importantly, you got to win your own baseball game. So the Blue Jays are going to find themselves in a real chase position quickly. So we've got John Morosi and Arden Zwelling um, at the top or the back end of this hour. Um, Arden will join us from Baltimore, maybe get an update on Vladdy because there's still no confirmation for sure if he'll be in the lineup. I know the Blue Jays will tweet out their lineup. Uh, maybe while we're on the air, uh, we'll see for sure. But, you know, he's pending. Um, this is a huge series. Whether he's been the star that we need him to be or not, Vladimir Guerrero Jr. makes a big difference. 
and hopefully can in this lineup, and we'll see moving forward. Uh, but we do want to touch on a couple other stories. There's a lot going on. The Toronto Raptors are in a... They're in some trouble. They're in They're a, the cheaty boys all of a sudden. This so this Raptor story that came out is uh, like Law and Order. Like, what's that theme song? I feel like we should be playing like detective music over. We could probably bump us in we with that probably. next segment. Uh, yeah. We will wrap up our show with a bit more on this with Doug Smith of the Toronto Star uh, because it's still uh, it's a topic that we're unpacking. So they've been a, a legal document. Uh, they've been they're being charged. sued. They're, they're being, being sued, sued. Um, for basically stealing a lot of private information from the New York Knicks. Now, a hire from Darko Ryakovich, I want to make sure I get his name right, Ike Azatam. It's Ike or Ike Azatam. I have a friend named Ike, so I don't know. Maybe I'm just using that, but it could be Ike or Azatam. I mean, he's so low on the totem pole that we, like, apparently they wouldn't even go as far as to announce the hire when... Of course, the, the Raptors have remade their entire coaching staff this year. So they they had like a wave of hires. Mm-hmm. This guy is kind of still on his way or was on his way to Toronto from New York. There's a lot of stuff going on behind the scenes here. But this is, we're talking about a low, low level working in the video room mm-hmm. employee that I guess the Raptors had poached from the Knicks at some point this summer. So he was the Knicks former director of video analytics and player development. Which sounds decent. But he's now coming to the Raptors in a lower role. Looks good on a LinkedIn page. Yeah, they haven't announced the role officially. So the lawsuit alleges that this employee who now went from the Knicks to the Raptors shared over 3,000 video files illegally with Ryakovich, um, which has been viewed thousands of times. So stole personal information from the Knicks scouting department, sent it to his own email when he knew he was going to get a job with the Raptors and took it and was sending it to the Raptors in order to assist them with their video scouting, with understanding of different plays, even their own Raptors yeah, scouting video reports files. on the Raptors, scouting on specific reports on teams, every team, on the Nick. Like, yeah, it's a it, lot of information. Yeah. Um, and this has now been caught because first of all, anything on email can be tracked. Like, I mean, it's just the easiest thing you've ever learned. And like, I mean, this was, this was a crime. It wasn't the perfect crime though. No, there was no, definitely, definitely a paper a lot trail. Of holes, right? Yeah. There's, there's some holes here in, in the designs that, uh, old EK had. So there's a lot of ways that we can interpret this. Um, first of all, it's, yeah, it's not the perfect crime, but who's at fault? Like if, and Ryakovich is named as one of the defendants, right? Like he is named as one of the individuals that could go down if this is one, one of the defendants that allegedly viewed the files 2000 times. So mm-hmm. 2000 times files that belong to the New York Knicks were viewed illegally by Darko Ryakovich and other members of the Raptors, Raptors coaching staff, again, allegedly. So here's a couple quotes. Um, so the this is both from The Athletic and from Doug Smith's article, and we'll talk to him at 4.30, and from the actual lawsuit itself. Quote, the Knicks alleged that not only did Ryakovich know about what was occurring, but that he, quote, recruited and used the then Knicks employee to help him build out the operations for his coaching staff. Documents including scouting reports, play frequency reports, a prep book, and a link to third-party licensed software helped Ryakovich acclimate to his first head coaching job. So all of this information that was given to him by this mole, like that's what they're calling it, a mole, mm-hmm. was to help first-time NBA head coach Darko Ryakovich get up to speed, get ready to coach an NBA team, which is a horrible look. It's a lazy look. It's a slap in the face. 
and it's a crime. Like, there's just no other way to put it. Like, he's stealing information to get ahead is a really awful, awful look. So there's a lot of people um, that are named in this lawsuit, including some John Doe's, so people we don't actually know the names of um, in the MLSC or Raptors franchise. But this isn't going to go away quietly. This is going to be a big deal. And, and there could be real implications, like maybe not coaching this team. Yeah, I, I think it's worth asking if Darko Ryakovic coaches a game with the Toronto Raptors, honestly. Like, this is this seems like it's very, very serious. And it's uh, when I first saw the report, I'm like, oh, he left with a couple duotangs. But with when a couple, you get into it, it's a lot but, of but stuff. But if you're going into the database, which was, again, multiple, many employees, multiple years putting scouting reports together on players across the NBA, I mean, you are stealing intellectual property and bringing it to your new employer. And I don't know how this stuff works, obviously, uh, detailed behind the scenes. Of course, there are going to be some things that you know and can transfer in terms of information. Brad Treliving wasn't allowed at a draft table for 14 picks <laughs> yeah. in Nashville because I guess he would have known some things that Calgary would have been interested in doing at the draft. And that sounds so silly and easy to laugh at. Mm -hmm. But if you get, and it's easy to laugh too at the, oh, you're stealing from the New York Knicks. Like, is that the team right. you want to like steal the, it's from? It's a joke. Like, why not steal from this, the Warriors? Yeah, if you, yeah I get if it. You, if you could go into the, the Warriors database and get a couple secrets, maybe that would be worth something but it seems like pretty simply Darko Rayakovich a first-time head coach with no experience actually putting together what's needed by a head coach like maybe mm -hmm. he's in his own lane hey this is the stuff I worked on and I could bring over myself because I I own it or whatever uh that's easy for him but clearly he didn't have a sophisticated enough video base or information based database where he felt the need, it seems, or it's alleged, to get someone to bring him information mm -hmm. to fill out an incomplete folder, database, whatever you want to call it. And for me, this is like, it's a horrible look on Masai Ujiri because, and in addition to many horrible looks, like the asset mismanagement of the last six months, right. now bringing in a head coach who's cramming for the test and doing so illegally. I have, feel not like I've done this look. before for yeah. like trying to, to memorize uh, equations that I don't understand, but I'm like, okay, yeah, if you put X here and then this, like, no, you, you need to understand it and you got to put the work in it. He didn't. Yeah, you've got to build this stuff yourself or you're going to be caught red-handed, which it seems that they did. He didn't have maybe what he promised he did have or he's just not at that point in his coaching life where he's developed the systems and the reports on every single person and player and team out there. And frankly, it just looks like amateur hour if you're the Toronto Raptors. Not only did you hire a coach that needed that, but you actually went through and tried to obtain it through illegal means. It is pretty wild. And this guy, EK or Ike Azatam, like his, his career is toast now, is it not? Like well, how is he going like to recover from this? Important is that it hasn't, this is just, this is allegations so far. Even like this, so. I know, I'm just saying, it is a lawsuit and allegation. So, we, you know, this is our reaction to it regardless. But yeah, not, it's going to be gone to the full length to figure this out, of course. Sure. But- I mean, it's not a great look regardless, you know, whether you you just think that it's... It's just why would the Knicks do this, right? Why would the Knicks go through this process of, of a whole lawsuit 
if there wasn't some sort of ground to stand um, um, on. Unless they just opened up their Gmail and said, hey, uh, Azatam just basically stole everything and, and gave it to the <laughs> ra- copied and pasted everything and gave it to a division I mean, it looks, rival. It looks pretty brutal. And it that's, looks uh, really it's bad. fair to say that and to, to, to feel, you know, a little bit uh, anxious about the result. Another little part of it mm-hmm. is, okay, there was a couple of defendants named Darko Ryakovic being one of them. Right. The other was Noah Lewis, who is in the, is in the video department won or received the Wayne and Teresa Embry Fellowship Program. So join the Raptors mm-hmm. through like an outreach sort of method, right? Like you're you're bringing people in to learn about the game. You're giving them opportunities they may not have had. And I don't want to say that Azatam was used, but maybe he was. And I don't want to say that Noah Lewis was used, a guy who went through the programs that you put in place to get talent and coaches through grassroots programs. Mm-hmm. You may have used him too if he was named in this in this uh, in this lawsuit, like it is a really, really ugly look, and really the only thing that, uh, in terms of like justification, reason why was because Darko Ryakovic wasn't prepared to be an NBA coach. That's the only thing that I can kind of deduce from all of this, and it looks bad on him, and it looks bad, bad, bad on the organization, and it's just one of many bad looks that we've seen over the last six, eight months. Like you go on a whim um, and you do something non-traditional. You hire, I think it's the second non-North American head coach also in the NBA, right? Uh, Sure. I believe that, I'm I'm trying to remember from when the press release was out. Nonetheless, he's never never been an NBA head coach before. Zagging a little bit of everyone. You're zagging, you're zagging. And it could prove to be a really different look for this team and maybe the thing that they needed, but it's not getting off on the right foot. We can say that uh, with confidence. So we will talk to Doug Smith of the Toronto Star uh, at 4.30, so a little bit later in our show to go through it. He's been on uh, the beat. He's got a great article kind of debriefing everything there, but we'll get a bit more of an up-close and personal understanding of what's going on here with the Raptors and how this might affect uh, the start of their season. And maybe we can ask him what's going on with Pascal too because we always hear little tidbits floating out. Uh, But we'll take a break because we've got John Morosi on the other side, MLB Network Insider. Huge series kicks off tonight. Uh, Maybe the biggest so far of the Blue Jays season, probably the biggest so far of the Blue Jays season, three games at the Orioles with Kikuchi on the mound. They set themselves up to at least get off on the right foot. uh, But is that enough? John Morosi after the break on Fan Drive Time with Justin and Ailish. Breaking down the biggest stories in Toronto sports. The Fan Morning Show with Ailish Forfar and Justin Cuthbert. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Back on Fan Drive Time, Justin and Ailish filling in for Ben Ennis all week long. And we get to tee up a pretty big series for your Toronto Blue Jays starting tonight. Kikuchi on the mound, 7-5 first pitch against the Baltimore Orioles. Let's talk to our guy, John Morosi, MLB Network Insider, on a nice afternoon chat. How's it going, John? Doing great, Ellis and Justin. A beautiful day here in the great state of Michigan as well. And, and we're we're closer to September baseball. We're closer to NHL training camps. This, my friends, is a wonderful time of year. The vibes are always high with you, but specifically when we head into the, the, the meshing of all those seasons, it is just John Morosi all the time. It's peak Morosi. <laughs> it's like peak foliage when the falls change. We get peak John Morosi. Yeah. <laughs> so the Jays uh, set up for success, I think, when you look at the way the pitching lineup, uh, Kikuchi, Gosman, Barrio, a day off in between. Uh, I mean, before we kick off tonight, we got the bullpen rest, rested and you 
you've got Bo Bichette back in the lineup. Is that enough, though, to be able to take two out of three of these Baltimore Orioles? It's going to be a tough assignment, Ailish, just because of uh, how well Baltimore is playing. They're at home, of course. That has become a tougher ballpark to hit in uh, since they changed the dimensions. And the Orioles actually have the right up there with the Jays in terms of one of the better pitching staffs in the game since the All-Star break. And I really thought it was striking just looking at the numbers earlier today. The Jays have given up the fewest runs of any team in the entire sport since the All-Star break, which really tells you a lot about how consistent they've been and and honestly probably the one thing that's kept them from going on a tremendous run where they might have been able to win 70 percent of their games in the way that the Mariners have is just the offense hasn't been as consistent as the pitching has been but I I look at this as a huge test this is the kind of series the Jays are going to have to win to get through the playoffs to make it to the World Series we know this team is in a winning window right now to not just win a a division potentially, but but win the World Series. That's where this team is right now, whereas the Orioles are very much at the beginning of that window, we believe, for them. And so I, I think this is one of those test type of series that we'll be talking about for a long time. If, you, if you're the Jays and you want to show the baseball world that you are a team to be reckoned with in October, you find a way to take two out of three against one of the best teams in baseball in their house. Yeah, I mean, the opponent, the location, it certainly makes it seem like it's, uh, you know, what's at stake maybe is bigger than it is. It's like, oh, we need a response to the Orioles. We're 2-8 and eight versus the Orioles. They're in first place. We should be in first place. It seems like that adds more to it. But when it comes down to it, when you look at who the Blue Jays are scrapping and fighting it out for these final wildcard spots with, it just comes down to winning baseball games, right? Like two of three is just kind of what they need. Obviously, three of three would be uh, remarkably positive for this team. But we're at the point now where it's like there are no like moral victories, right? You're, like, you're not taking something back right. from Baltimore. You just need to win baseball games because those other teams, they're not going to stop winning baseball games. And I'm looking at the rest of the season, 37 games. Like what's the mark? Do they have to win 22, 23 to get in? Like wh- what do you ex- what's, what's needed in terms of the end of season win column to get in the playoffs in your mind in the American League this year? Yeah, it's a great question because I, I look at now – um, and certainly the win total is a good milepost to look at and, and think about how many wins you'd have to hit. Um, is it is it hitting 90? I, I tend to think that if you find a way to hit 90 wins, you're probably going to make the playoffs, and obviously that would be a, a lot of wins between now and the end of the season because they've got 69 at the moment. I, I really zero in, and, and yes, the Red Sox have played really good baseball and, and might be able to catch the Jays. They're three games back of Toronto. But I'm really zeroing in on three teams, Houston, Seattle, Toronto. And if the current structure of the way the races look remain in this fashion, then you're probably talking about two out of those three teams making it. Ironically enough, and here's the really wild thing at the moment, is that Toronto's actually only three games back of the Rangers. And the Rangers are still in, so they're in first place in the West. The reason why I mentioned them as being relevant here is that the Rangers, for as well as they've played for so much of the year, they only have a game and a half lead on Houston in the division. And so all of a sudden, with how well that the, the Mariners have played, it's really compressed the American League West a lot to where I, I know that the, for a long time we've been focused on how the, the Jays are playing in relation to the Mariners. The Mariners honestly are playing so well that they might just leave everybody behind. They might find a way to 
to close those two games between themselves and the Texas Rangers. And, and Lulu, sweetheart, okay, thank you. Uh, as, as you heard, my, my daughter decided to introduce herself into the conversation. Of course. Uh, no so problem She's got takes on the Orioles. <laughs> yeah, Lulu, you have some thoughts on the Orioles, kiddo? Yeah, maybe not. So, uh, so at, at any rate, she's, by the way, as, as a quick aside, no, sweetheart, find your sisters, okay, love? Uh, she, she had, uh, Lulu was able to get on TV when we were at the Little League World Series over the weekend. And that may have been the biggest mistake of my career because now she thinks that she can be part of any segment that she <laughs> wants. She's a movie star. That, that, was, that was a kid-focused <laughs> event, so it felt authentic and to the moment. But now Lulu thinks that she could just drop in on my conversation with the two of you. At any rate, <laughs> as, as I was saying about, about the, the American League West, at the moment you've got Texas a game and a half ahead of Houston, two games ahead of Seattle. And so I would keep one eye on that series because – and in that race overall, because if Seattle is able to pass them both by, then you're talking about keeping up with a, a somewhat beleaguered Texas team that has now lost five straight. So while part of the, the Jays fandom says that we just got to keep pace with this, with this Mariner team, my advice is just keep winning series. If you keep winning series, I, I think that, that whoever is finishing third in that American League West might come back down to earth a little bit, and you'd be surprised that team might not be the Seattle Mariners. Yeah, that's the bottom right line, right? Because you can't just pick the team that you got to beat out because it could change. It could be a moving target. And the Blue Jays do have four games late or mid-September uh, hosting the Texas Rangers. I mean, we're talking about this is the mm. biggest series of the season right now. A month from now or three weeks from now, we could be talking about that Texas series being the biggest. And if you're taking three or four for them, maybe you're bumping them out of the playoffs. Uh, do they right. seem vulnerable to you, though? You mentioned five straight losses. I mean, Houston just lost three in a row to Seattle, uh, and they bounce back immediately. Was that kind of situational? Or has Texas been kind of playing some bad baseball over the last two months? Because it seemed like they were home and cool at the All-Star break. Right. No, you're exactly right. I mean, for me, I look at Texas – and if you were to tell me at the beginning of the year that, that DeGrom would be out and gone for the season and that Nate Evaldi would be on the injured list in August, and I would say that this team would be in trouble. Now, obviously, they've since added Montgomery and Scherzer, and both of them have pitched great. But th their bullpen isn't great, um, even though Chapman, I think, has helped them stabilize things. You know, offensively, they're certainly leaning on in a huge way Semyon and Seeger. They've missed, I think, Josh Young over at third base. If you look at how they've played since then, since he went on the injured list, they haven't been quite the same team. So um, they're a good team. I'm not sure they're a great team. They were playing great baseball. They were, everything was clicking for this team for a substantial portion of the year. They've come back down to earth a little bit. I think Houston has shown a bit of their own vulnerability, too. Seattle's pitching is just so good, and Julio Rodriguez just doesn't make outs anymore. <laughs> and so when you add up all those elements, I, I think that, that Texas right now, we're seeing a regression to, to being a good team. They're, they are a good team, but they're not a great team. And I think that's where some vulnerability is coming into play. And if, if Toronto can keep this pace of pitching going, and, and look, I think on the plus side for the Jays, they've got Bichette back. I think the last two games in Cincinnati were a huge statement, especially the offensive showing on Sunday. Um, it, it, we'll see, obviously, how things go with Vladdy and this finger issue that's come up. You know, how much was this impacting him before we even realized it? That's another element to think about here. But, but if the Jays can keep their pitching on this type of tempo, um, the rotation has been excellent. We barely really even have to dwell on the Manoa situation because the reality is they've got five 
excellent starters at the moment. So I'm, I'm really bullish on the Jays. Their schedule should be pretty favorable. Um, so I think as long as, as Bo stays healthy and, and Davis Schneider keeps coming up with some well-timed hits, I, I think this team's in pretty good shape. Yeah, you mentioned the Mariners. Um, they also have a pretty favorable schedule. White Sox right now, Royals, Athletics, Mets. I, I worry a little bit about them being able to at least win four series, maybe sweep some of those. And they seem to be this team of vibes right now. So much positivity, yeah. excitement. They're on a seven-game winning streak. We got Louis Castillo last night throwing 47 consecutive fastballs because he just can so things have just been really fun for them like how much of the energy momentum can just continue to sustain when you play four teams that are kind of at the bottom of the standings no that's an excellent point Alicia. and i think this team in seattle they, they went on a comparable run last year i think this year that they're, they're an even better team and they, they played really mediocre to disappointing baseball in the first half of the season almost in a way that was confusing because their pitching has always been good they, their offense was just lost. And and once Julio gets going, he is one of these magnetic people in the game that when he gets going, he just elevates the entire group. It's almost like the run that Randy and Rosarena had for the, for the Rays during the playoffs a few years back. He, he just gives an entire confidence and, and swagger to this team to where I think he's helped the offensive output of some other guys. You've even had some younger players step into the lineup, Cade Marlowe, who was ever talking about him? And then he steps in when Kelnick gets hurt uh, in, a, in a moment of frustration, and, and here, here he goes. And I think offensively they've gotten a little bit more on second base. Um, they, they let Colton Wong go. They've been better with Caballero and Josh Rojas there. It was a bit of a controversial trade that they made uh, with Paul Sewell, but I think they got in some position players who they've needed. Um, interestingly, Tasker Hernandez has played better, I think, since the All-Star break. They outside of, of Julio, they've got a lot of guys that I think are are really solid complementary players. And now they've all moved up a little bit. They've all taken it up a notch. Uh, I think since the All Star break, where Ty France has been, I, I think he's, his numbers have been down a bit from where they were a year ago. But I think he's been a little bit better of late. Stephen Crawford's back from the injured list. Eugenio Suarez is always good for a well timed home run. Teoscar's played better. Mike Ford has been a bit of a revelation for them. So. It's not a superstar-laden team with the exception of J-Rod, but they're going to probably get Kelnick back at some point, and their pitching is just so darn good that even with the, the recent injury to Emerson Hancock, I think they'll find a way to keep this, this run going, and they're going to be a nightmare to face in the playoffs. We obviously saw that last year in the series against the Jays. But yeah, don't remind us. Is, is a, <laughs> I know, I know, but they are, they are a nightmare in the short series to where, I mean, they, they got swept by Houston, but that was – if it's such a possible thing, it was a close sweep. I mean, they, they really could have one swing one way or the other. They could have been right in the middle of a different series. So um, they're a dangerous team of play, playing with a lot of confidence. And I think that uh, as much as the Jays are worried about the Mariners right now, honestly, I think Houston and Texas are, are downright afraid of Seattle because Seattle's conceding nothing right now. They think they can win the division, and, and they might be right. Well, scoreboard watching is fun, but also uh, full of things you can't control. And Blue Jays hopefully just focus right. on this series ahead, as you mentioned, could be a really big one to put uh, put a little bit of pressure on everyone else. John, appreciate you joining us this afternoon and say hi to Lulu. And she's probably coming for my job in the next 10 to 15 years, so I'll hold on tight while I can. Oh, the two of you are awesome, Alice. <laughs> nobody, nobody, trust me, nobody, nobody in this family is going to be able to use, usurp the great work that you do. Oh, and I, I appreciate your, your patience with, yeah, I'm usually like at a field hockey practice or a hockey <laughs> rink somewhere, and 
I even I, I'm at a playground. I thought Lulu was going to be able to keep her distance. Okay. That Lulu, <laughs> she she wants the camera. I don't know. I don't know, guys. She's I, always I welcome. She's always there. welcome. Always welcome. <laughs> Thanks, Thank John. So I appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks so much. Take care. That's John Morosi of MLB Network and his daughter Lulu of future MLB Network, I'm sure, and Most everything definitely. else. Uh, that was really sweet. Uh, but yeah, he mentioned it. Like this, this series is it, it can mean a lot for this Blue Jays team. It's an opportunity to kind of put yourselves back in the conversation and also circle that you're a serious baseball team and you're going to contend with the best of them. So can't wait to see that kick off tonight. And Arden Zwelling's already on the phone to join us because that's how excited we are about uh, this serious Sportsnet uh, sideline reporter. You're down in Baltimore. How's it going this afternoon, Arden? Hey, it's going well. Uh, how are you guys? Great. Are you feeling the same type of vibes that we are up here? Biggest series, uh, biggest opportunity to really, you know, shout a couple people up and say that you're part of this this stretch down the, ro- uh, down the road here and that it's going to be important uh, baseball for the Blue Jays to be played into October, hopefully. Well, it's kind of that time of year where we say that every three or four days, right? <laughs> so it's the, the biggest series since the last biggest series and definitely the biggest series until the next biggest series, which will uh, be this weekend against Cleveland. Yeah, I already have four red circles in place for September, Texas at home, the four, the next biggest series before or after the uh, the latest next biggest series. Okay, so Bo Bichette obviously comes back. Blue Jays get two wins. He's immediately productive. He's dropping the mic saying, hey, we need to be fearless. Uh, when he makes that quote, when he has the weekend he has, like what, what comes to mind to you? Is it like, okay, Bo's team and Bo is going to lead this team right now? Uh, and how does that contrast to what your previous uh, thoughts and beliefs and ideas were when it came to Bo Bichette? Like, has he turned a corner here, and are the Blue Jays ready to turn a corner on the season because Bo Bichette's back? Well, what came to mind really was what Bo said about a year ago, like practically to the day when he resuscitated the 2022 season, and that was that I figured out how to be fearless. Like, we've heard that word from him before he was talking about it this spring and he was talking about it this time last year and I think that he got caught up in the first four and a half, five months of 2022 with trying to be a player who he's not um, and, and probably trying to work deeper plate appearances than he does when he's at his best and maybe uh, you know, not, not really wanting to look foolish whipping a slider off the plate as he so often does and just not being as aggressive as he needs to be uh, when he's at his that so it, it really did remind me of his own personal approach and what allowed him to get out of a really deep punk last year and unlock himself mentally at the plate uh and whether or not you know his teammates can pick up on some of that remains to be seen but uh, i do know it takes more than just one exceptional talent at the plate to carry a team and, and i think the los angeles angels are a really good example of that so it's good that so is back and being productive but the blue is going to be more than just him um, Arden, we're going to just try to reconnect with you quickly um, and get a better phone line there. Uh, we could hear what you're saying, but it was a bit fuzzy. Um, but yeah, it's about Bo leading this team now into the most important games of the season. Uh, it's about this momentum that he can hopefully lead this team for. Since he came back, we saw it. We saw a little bit more positive vibes around him, and he's going to let that trickle effect through some of the other guys that really need to feel that same energy. Yeah, it's unbelievably important, right? Like what we've been seeing these these lineups, these box scores, how much it looked like it was inferior, especially compared to teams that you're looking at in scoreboard watching. Like, can you measure up? 
And then Bo Bichette comes back, and it's like, oh, yeah, yeah, we can measure up. This lineup looks like it can compete with the teams that they are battling with. I think we're bringing Arden back on now. Uh, Arden, do we have any update on the Vlad Guerrero situation? Uh, clearly, he was, you know, removed over the weekend, dealing with a middle finger issue. Is there reason to believe he won't be a participant in uh, tonight's game, this series game? And, uh, you know, what should we expect here from Vladimir Guerrero Jr.? I'm expecting him to play tonight, just knowing Vlad. I don't think we can something that will keep him out of the lineup, but we'll, we'll see. We're going to get into the clubhouse in about 30 minutes, and then we'll talk to John Schneider in about an hour, and we'll have a, a more fulsome update than that. But it isn't something that we just thought was a super serious issue uh, when he came out of that third game in, in Cincinnati. So, uh, you know, as of right now, it seems like a minor day-to-day thing, and just knowing Vlad, I would be surprised that he's not playing today. Last one for you, Artem, before we let you uh, go and enjoy tonight's baseball. Um, we've been seeing some information that Alec Manoa um, have obviously has, has not with the Blue Jays lineup, but hasn't been um, pitching elsewhere. Uh, obviously got sent down to AAA Buffalo, but hasn't made a start since being optioned. Uh, what's your understanding of what's going on with Manoa and this kind of holding pattern? Because we also heard that he's available to pitch if the Blue Jays need him if there's an injury. It's just a bit of a confusing situation. Yeah, that's something else I expect to learn some more about within the next hour, hour and 15 minutes. And again, to the Jays Clubhouse, and then we talk to John Schneider. You know, it's been about 12 days since Alex Manoa pitched in a, in a competitive game. And what we heard on the weekend from John Schneider was that Alex Manoa was still in Toronto. And had yet to uh, report to the AAA Buffalo Bible to his uh, option to uh, nearly two weeks ago. So certainly still some more information to be learned there. And I expect that we will. Uh, some of that within the next hour, but, you know, when Alex Manoa was optioned, um, you know, the understanding, the sense that I had at the time was about Francis was a good number six starter, and uh, I haven't had any reason since that point to change my mind on, on that. I believe that if the Blue Jays really needed a starter right now, it would be about six. Okay, well, Artem, we have lots to learn from you in the next hour or two, so we'll let you run. We'll te- uh, keep an eye on your Twitter page and for you this uh, evening on Sportsnet. Appreciate you jumping on and enjoy the baseball. Thanks, guys. That's Arden's Welling, Sportsnet. Um, of course, a couple things pending. Uh, some information on Alec Manoa would be great. I know we didn't really get into this much yesterday, but we saw the information that he's around but not doing much, and it would be great to get an update um, from John Schneider maybe this afternoon about what's going on. And then, of course, with... Vladdy, if he's in the lineup or not, Arden seems to think that he will be. Wouldn't want to miss something of the sort. I, I would, you know, I agree with that sentiment. Yeah. But uh, we'll see if the finger in- injury is still lingering. Yeah, yeah. You mentioned the Manoa thing. We talked about it. I, I'm, I'm interesting to see what the rationale is. I mean, as Arden mentioned, yeah, you have the guy that's doing the thing that I guess Manoa could provide in Bowden Francis, who, who went out there and threw, uh, you know, three innings the other day uh, to close out a game. Uh, it just seems. Again, it is very, very strange. It feels like he is sort of above demotion, despite, you know, still being a young guy who, despite having one brilliant season, hasn't proved all that much as a major leaguer. If we're being honest, I know we had this thing in our head about what Alec Manoa was and the expectations coming to the season. He is the guy that you build a starting rotation around, but that's not really the case. And that's been proven this year. And to think that you're above and I'm not saying that he does, but the situation says that he's above demotion, mm-hmm. above making starts at the AAA level, above the sort of punishment or consequence for not pitching at a major league level. It just seems a little fishy, honestly. And I'd love to know exactly what the plans are. And I'd love to know beyond what we're going to hear because we're not going to hear truce. I mean, John mm-hmm. Schneider is 
delivered a, a very few uh, negative truths all season long because he is very, very protective of his guys. But I, I want to know what the rationale is. I want to know what they're doing. I want to know if Alec Manoa is trying to work his way back or just waiting on a next opportunity at the major league level. All right, so keep an eye on Arden's uh, Twitter page if he's going to tweet out some of that information um, on John Schneider, who should speak in the next hour or so. Um, we talk about how great things are with the Baltimore Orioles and how they got a young, dynamic offense and just a bunch of super studs. Um, but an interesting piece of information came out. Uh, John Angelos was speaking, uh, was he the owner? Owner of the, owner of the Orioles, the yeah. Orioles um, said that, you know, extending some of these guys might have to come at the cost of some of his fans. Uh, quote, the hardest thing to do in sports is to be a small market team in baseball and be competitive because everything is stacked against you. Everything. We're going to have to raise prices here dramatically. Let's say we sat down and showed you the financials for the Orioles. You will quickly see that when people talk about giving this player 200 million, that player 150 million, we would be so financially underwater that you'd have to raise the prices massively. I mean, that's <laughs> that that sucks to hear, right? If you're yeah. an Orioles fan, like it sucks to be like, oh, we this is short-lived. We don't get to keep these great players. But also, I guess it's a bit of flattery to to the team itself. Like if I'm if I'm in the, uh, the clubhouse, I'm like, yeah, you know, we, we are a bunch of two hundred million dollar players yeah. in the making here. But like, I just don't know why this needs to be said. Yeah. If you're gonna act like the Rays, which again is completely fine, if you want to be the Tampa Bay Rays, the second coming of the Rays, where you just put together and always accrue talent at the very very basic level and grow and developed and get to the point where you produce major leaguers who go on to make money elsewhere. But in the process, you win a lot of baseball games, maybe cyclically, but you win a lot of baseball games. Like that's not bad. What's worse is being the team wasting money. What's worse is being mm -hmm. a team caught in the middle. If you just want to be the Rays, just be the Rays, but don't talk about it. But saying this, it's like, oh, you better enjoy it. You better come to the ballpark this October because this Next may be the last time you'll it. see Gunnar Henderson <laughs> in this. Like, it sucks to hear that. And I just don't understand why it needs to be said. Just raise the prices. Just don't tell anyone why. I, it's it's a strange one. If but, you're headed down I mean, this there. is the guy who got rid of a team broadcaster True. for reading a stats board. Oh, so yeah, no, I don't know how logical many of these moves are. Hasn't been the greatest PR month for the Orioles. How about that? Not at all. Um, Joshua Cloak joins us after the break uh, from The Athletic. We talked about this yesterday right while we were on the air. He tweeted out that John Herman was the front runner for TFC. New head coaching job. Let's catch up with him and see how far along those are and if it's just waiting to be announced. Josh Cloak after the break. takes on the biggest stories in sports. The Fan Drive Time with Ben Ennis. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, it's the fan drive time. Justin Cuthbert and Ailish Forfar, the fan morning show in for Ben Ennis this week. A big week for the Toronto Blue Jays, of course, with a three-game set, the Baltimore Orioles. But we're also tracking TFC, and we haven't been tracking TFC all that much because, frankly, they haven't given us much to be too, too interested yeah, in. Don't put yourself from, through you know, that. Vaping on private jets <laughs> and all that stuff. 
Uh, and the man who gave us that story and the most important stories regarding TFC this year is Josh Cloak of The Athletic, who's on the line with us now. Good afternoon, Josh. How are we doing? How are you guys doing? How is it? feel to like be able to sleep until like Beautiful. one or whatever <laughs> it's like, the, really one. Right? Oh, i don't know my the, body's the, like not, get up. not quite one <laughs> circadian rhythms off just a little bit uh it's 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 a nice little treat mm-hmm. but it's not like you know it's still a challenge it's always yeah. a challenge right okay. it's still a challenge uh but we're grinding through uh of course this afternoon okay so i uh, gotta ask you about john herman uh i don't even know if we want to percent but if you want to put a percentage on it but it seems like john herman to tfc is a thing that's going to happen based on the reading that you provided to us uh is that the case and how have we arrived at the point where john herman wants to leave or might leave the canadian men's national team to take over at the lowly tfc yeah, I think we're still at the might leave stage, right? I, I know that this story has progressed from, you know, John Herdman having informal talks with TFC to a week later being the front runner. Um, I think what remains to be seen is whether or not, you know, the people in charge at TFC right now, Bill Manning and Jason Hernandez, are going to be able to to make the decision on their next head coach now, maybe at the end of the season, maybe at all. Right. I, I think that's something worth remembering here is, you know, off the top, you were talking about just how brutal a season it's been for TFC. And I mean, they haven't really given fans much to cheer about since 2020. Right. That's three seasons out of the playoffs. That's two head coaches fired in that time. I mean, if you're MLSC, are you not sort of saying, OK, well, Bill, you know, Bill Manning in particular, why should we give you the green light to hire yet another head coach? Right. So I, I think that's maybe something that that causes this to be a little less of John Herdman is definitely going to be the next coach to John Herdman might be the next head coach. Right. Is, is John Herdman the preferred favorite at TFC right now? I think so. Is he the only person in contention? I, I don't think so. I think there's a number of other qualified candidates who have interviewed for the position. But I certainly think if, if Bill Manning, you know, and, and certain people at TFC had their way, John Herdman would would probably be their head coach. But again, we don't know yet if if Bill Manning is going to be able to make that decision. Is that because uh, in terms of him being like maybe the, the, the leading candidate, is that because of his coaching resume or is that because maybe it's a great PR move as well? And he's the biggest name in Canadian sports, uh, had coaching opportunities, I assume. How much of it is a little bit of both? Yeah, I, I think it is a little bit of both. Um, and like, you know, in, in saying that, I don't want to sell John Herdman's coaching qualifications mm-hmm. short, right? Like this is, a, this is a coach who has two Olympic bronze medals. This is a coach who took a program, a Canadian soccer or Canadian men's team program that was kind of in the woods. Uh, you know, he took them to the World Cup. Obviously, he had generational talent around him. Right, but he still kind of instilled a culture in this men's team that that hadn't existed, you know, since in in my opinion, Stephen Hart, you know, a decade earlier. Um, so, yeah, he he deserves credit as um, you know a coach who can inspire players. And the thing that I that I really appreciate about John Herdman is how he raises the floor. But I think that the the problem that some people have when they look at at John Herdman's work with the men's national team, particularly his recent work, which is, you know, going 0-3, one of just two teams to go 0-3 at the World Cup, losing to the United States, and frankly, you know, if we're being honest, getting quite embarrassed 
by the United States in the Nations League final, and then losing in the quarterfinals of the Gold Cup. I, I think then the question people have about John Herdman is, okay, he raised the floor, can he raise the ceiling? Right? Does he have the tactical acumen to push these players, a lot of these players who are now playing under world-class coaches, does he have the tactical acumen to push them? So I think when you think about it like that, that's why pro- you know some people probably say, well, this is just a PR move. I don't think it is just that because I think this Toronto FC team, you know, that entire building just needs a, an injection of life. And I have no doubt that John Herdman could bring that. Um, but I, I think it's fair to have questions, especially because, you know, we haven't even talked about the fact he's never coached at the club level. That is remarkably different than coaching, you know, every two or three months. And I think that's why there are still some reservations. You know, you see on Twitter, for example, I think that's why there are some reservations about John Herdman taking over at TFC right now. Yeah, and I think it's past moves, too, that are painting it a little bit or painting the situation and the idea of bringing in Herbin just a little bit. Like, I think about Bill Manning. I think about a guy whose eyes are always wide, right? Like, they're, maybe the, maybe he's a little bit too aggressive or ambitious and he wants the big name. He wants to sell the tickets that right. way. And really, he's doing too much, if that makes uh, any sense. And with Herbin, it's like, yeah, he is the biggest name available. He is the guy who's the household name that everybody knows. And yeah, he's an accomplished head coach, but you're right. He doesn't have experience at the club level. And and it is really, really important to, you know, heed to that, that, uh, that reality that this guy does not have experience at this level he's got experience at a really high level but not this level uh and for that reason i think there's reason to be skeptical uh for herdman himself like obviously money would be the the driving force i would assume but beyond money what would be the impetus for him getting up and leaving a a a post where he's going to be hosting uh or uh, coaching at a host world cup uh leaving what is probably a bigger job at least on the global scale like what what is in it for herdman other than cash well, there's only one place for TFC to go right now, and that's up, right? You, you know that MLSC and TFC are going to spend, you know, they're going to inject resources into this roster next season. Um, you know, I think Federico Bernadeschi probably moves, um, you know, in the winter window, and I think there's probably going to be an injection, a new injection of talent. I've been told that, that Bill Manning wants his next coach to kind of overgo or, or sorry, undergo a, a complete overhaul of the roster. And so if you're John Herdman, you're looking at this and you're saying, I, I can build this up and I'm going to have the resources to do it. And if you're a head coach, that's when you want to take over a team is when they're at rock bottom, because there's only one place to go. And regardless of how long you last, if you play your cards, right, it, it looks pretty good on a resume. John Herdman is still a young manager and he's an ambitious person and he has his eyes always, you know, looking forward. I don't think anybody ever thought that, you know, the men's national team, the Canadian men's national team was going to be John Herdman's last stop, right? I would bet somewhere deep inside him, he wants to return, you know, to England at some point and coach there, you know, maybe at the club level. And Toronto FC is a high-profile MLS team, right? So you, if you can build them back up, if you can get them into the playoffs, like there's no sense for any head coach. Why would any head coach want to take over a team that, you know, is, had, had just won a championship, right? There's only one place to go and that's down. So if you're John Herdman, you're looking at this and you're saying, I think I can build this team back up. And if I can do that, I can kind of, I don't want to say repair my image. I don't think that's fair, 
but I, I can kind of change the narrative a little bit about me. Um, and if I can do that, if I, if I can get this team, you know, back into the playoffs, um, if I can work with some high profile players, you know, again, there's a lot of media attention on Toronto FC more so than most MLS teams. Um, that, that looks good on a resume. And again, John Herdman is young. We know he wants to coach at the club level. This is probably a really, really good place to start for him. I mean, they haven't won a game since May. So as you mentioned, there's only right. one, one way but up. Um, then uh, you could take over that team and win one game. We're already on the right path. Uh, Joshua Cook of The Athletic with us here. So if this does happen and John Herman does leave Canada Soccer and take TFC head coaching role, where does that leave Canada Soccer? You know, obviously the, the big opportunity, 2026 FIFA World Cup on home soils around the corner. There's a lot of disappointment for them falling short at the last opportunity to represent their country. And Canada Soccer is in a bit of a... Uh, tumultuous place to say the least uh, where would that leave the club uh, without a head coach yeah and and again th- th- that's a pretty big if yes. right I, I still don't know and I, I understand it sounds like I'm couching things here but <laughs> it is still a big if but I will say like the the, the name that I'm kind of following um, in terms of someone who who I think would be a really good fit again big if um, is Bobby Smyrniotis the head coach of Forge FC in the Canadian Premier League. And I understand people have their reservations about the CPL. It's a new league. But if you look at what Bobby Smyrniotis has done, he's won three titles, you know, in four years with the Canadian Premier League. He's gone to North American competitions and he's won in Central America. That's a really, really hard thing to do. He's worked literally at the ground level with Kyle Lair and Tejon Buchanan, Richie Larea. These are all going to be starters in 2026. Right, so he, for my money, Bobby Smyrniotis is the best Canadian head coach right now. He's probably not the only person in consideration, but I, you know, Canada soccer can go a number of ways. They can try and land a big fish, right? They can try and land, you know, an assistant that that has World Cup experience. But I think if they want to go domestic, Bobby Smyrniotis is a name that I'm kind of looking at. He was, and, and I think still is quite high on the list of Toronto FC head coaching candidates. He mm-hmm. certainly interviewed with the team. Um, so he would be someone that I think Canada soccer would be wise to look at, especially given that, you know, I think he, again, he was very high on Toronto FC's list. And if Toronto FC is, is interested in you, then I think that, you know, the national team should be as well. Uh, that's interesting. Uh, glad to have a name, right? I mean, it, it seems like TFC, that's the hire TFC wouldn't want to make, given that they're always big game hunting. But it's nice to know, you know, someone, a club, a country looking at the grassroots programs, looking at guys who are on the come up. Uh, it's nice to know that there is some talent in the system and they're not just, you know, blindly looking for a big name because it does feel like TFC has lived off that for quite a while now. Uh, Josh, we appreciate you jumping on with us uh, this afternoon. We're tracking the Herdman story. And of course, you've been at the forefront of it. So keep up the good work. Appreciate it. Anytime, guys. That's Joshua Cloak. Uh, interesting, right? Because we were talking about, like, where, where's the name? Where's the name that's been working in, Can- mm-hmm. in Canadian soccer? Where's the name that's been working with the guys who have made it possible to go to a World Cup? I guess Cloak outlines one for you. It doesn't feel like a TFC hire. Maybe it doesn't feel like a Canadian national team hire mm-hmm. as well. But maybe it makes more sense than Herdman on multiple levels. Bobby Smyrniotis. Grows a mean beard on a quick Google First search. First thing I Googled, big beard. So Bobby, big beard. There you go. Bobby Beard. I'm convinced. I'm I'm into Bobby Beard. If Cloak mentioned him and he's got a beard. Bobby Beard.
Bobby Beard. Let's well, do it. Yeah, I mean, the TFC situation, um, you didn't, you know, you, you kind of lay it out. It, they're bottom of the standings. They're in a real tough spot. I guess that's the time you take it over. Expectations are a little lower than they would be if you're, you know, a back-to-back winning team. You got some pieces there. Do you have pieces there? That's the thing. I guess it, it's the opportunity for Herdman, if he wants it, in addition to all that money, yeah. to make something new, to have no you know, nationality boundaries. Mm-hmm. Maybe there's designated player boundaries. There's the fact that TFC does not really brought anyone up through the academy in a long time. At least it seems like there are They've swung definite some limitations. Big, some big, uh, big names, and but that hasn't... Been yeah, you, as successful. I guess you can be a little bit more creative. Lift though. the vaping rules, and things will be better. If you lift the vaping rules, like there's there's nothing standing in Herdman's Honestly, way. Honestly, if he just came Actually, in, there might be. Bernadeski is standing in the way. I think <laughs> that's the problem. If he came in and said, "All right, I'm the head coach. You can vape." Man, the, the vibes would be way higher on that team. The pool, the talent pool, would just be <laughs> in abundance. It would be there'd be too many options. Oh, too many designated player options. Well, check out Josh's stuff on the Athletic. Um, you know, head to see what's up what's new on his Twitter page, but the way he worded it was leading candidate, but not, it's not written in stone. It's still a, maybe a potential. So still a work in progress, I suppose. And again, Herdman, this isn't the only time Herdman's brought up other teams, other opportunities, other jobs, right? Like New Zealand was a thing. And it was like, Oh, he wants to go back to England. Mm -hmm. And then he fails so spectacularly that there's no option for him. Like, and that's another thing. Like I mentioned it yesterday. I care so much more about Canadian soccer than I do TFC. It'll always be that way. Mm -hmm. For me, it seems ludicrous to leave that job where you're going to be on TV coaching in front of the world to, hey, you know, Messi's going to serve me my lunch whenever he comes to town. Like, it is completely different. Completely. Especially when the World Cup is in your home country. And you only have to last another three years, and then you can say goodbye. And if you're really that good of a coach, maybe you get the best job because you did such a great job with Canada despite all the problems and all the adversity that you're facing coaching Well, maybe Canada Canada. soccer is just as, like, way more toxic and in way worse of a spot than we even know because we hear from the players all the time. Like, we had Sophie Schmidt on on the Fan Morning Show last week, and we've talked in depth with... You know, people during the World Cup for both the men and the women about the state of Canada soccer. Like maybe he's just like, I'm done with this. I'm not gonna be in a bush league organization. I mean, he's gonna, you know, he's not going to TFC. So, yeah, but uh, but but I mean, there's reason to believe it can be salvaged. I yes, think, of right? Like there is the money. He's gonna be making the money. He gets to spend the money. He won't have to talk. He won't have to worry about getting himself into matches, getting yeah. Alfonso Davies them. to play along and do and play this right position, right? Like there'll be so many a lot other of headache. Uh, there's so yeah. much headache with Canadian soccer, and maybe it's not worth it. And maybe for him, just taking you know four, five, six times the salary. Uh, and having creative control and not having to worry about anyone saying, hey, no, John, we can't do that. Maybe that is really appealing to him. And maybe he can turn TFC around and TFC can be the great again. And he can go back to England or New Zealand or wherever he wants to go and coach at an even higher level one day. But again, where, you're, where the eyes are going to be on you, it's Canada. It's the World Cup. It's getting to the World Cup again. I know they have a free pass, but it's mm-hmm. the process of getting back to that point, going through the process. That's where you can make your name internationally, but where he can make a lot of money and still have some of that international shine or some of that marketable shine. I mean, TFC is a big spot. Cloak is right. Just got a little sports update on my phone. Um, Vladdy will start tonight at first base. Um, so not missing a game after uh, leaving a little early last time out with that middle finger discomfort. So back in the starting lineup, we'll bat fourth. 
in the lineup, Merrifield, Bichette, Belt, Guerrero, Springer, Varsho, Chapman, Jansen, Kiermaier, and Kikuchi on the mound. So that, that is just coming th- out now. That is the A lineup, is it not? There she is. Kikuchi included. <laughs> Kikuchi, Kikuchi. Um, we had lots of other kicker stories to kind of work through here. Um, Brandon Hagel. You remember him well with the Tampa Bay Lightning signed a very quiet eight-year contract extension worth $52 million. So um, average annual deal, $6.5 million, starts next season. Uh, will be a free agent. Uh, he was set to be a free agent, sorry, in 2024. So locked up for a long time with the Tampa Bay Lightning. Um, a pretty, still a pretty serviceable player. He, he would get 30 or 40 goals last year. 30 goals? Uh, I would I wouldn't have said forty, but a productive guy. He certainly had a bit of a breakout season. He wasn't as good. Like they traded two first round picks to get him from Chicago a, a couple years ago, just because he was making so mm. little money against the salary cap. I guess his value was boosted to that point. Thirty still, goals on the dot. Still a bit of a questionable addition. Um, but interesting because for a couple reasons, six and a half is not chump change. I know eight years you have to you you get a little bit more than you probably valued at in the short term. Uh, but six and a half is a lot for Brandon Hagel. 30 goals is not what it was five, six years mm-hmm. ago. There's a lot of guys scoring 30 goals nowadays. And of course, he's played with some pretty good players. But he's going to make more than Anthony Sorelli for the foreseeable future. I mean, Sorelli's locked up through beyond 2029. Yeah. So he's going to be making more than Anthony Sorelli, who is a better player and much more valuable to this team. And then Steven Stamkos, uh, a storyline story that's not talked about much. This is the final season of his big deal that he signed way back, I guess, eight years ago or uh, in, on that fateful afternoon yes. where Taylor Hall and P.K. Subban had those big headlines as well. Uh, what happens to Steven Stamkos? I know there's going to be more money added to the system, but his final year at eight and a half, does he go into the career transition program where he's making less? Does he agree to do that? Well, it has to be more than Brandon Hagel, does it not? Does this mean you know who else is things a, are going to get a little tighter? Who else on Tampa Bay also needs a contract next summer? Victor Hedman. Two summers. He could sign one next summer, but oh, he's yes, got two yes, years sorry. left. But he's so, approaching yeah, I mean, the end of his eight-year deal. Yeah, well. so maybe this is the sign of things changing just a little bit in Tampa Bay. I mean, I'm sure Hedman and Stamkos will stick around. But then they have to decide where they want to fit into things. And I guess they could get more than Brandon Hagel. But it's not like Brandon Hagel is just leaving a bunch of money at the disposable for Julian Brisebois. Six and a half is a lot for eight years. It is a sizable investment. And uh, I I wonder if it comes out of a cost. And I wonder if it uh, irks Anthony Sorelli just a little bit, mm. earning a quarter million dollar less than a guy he's much more valuable than. It is nice to see somebody sign a long-term contract for a team, though. Are you going to go there? I'm just saying, in August, when we're wanting some contract news here in the city of Toronto, it is nice to see somebody signing an eight-year contract with their team. Eight-year contracts uh, are nice. I don't know if I'd be rushing to to sign this one, uh, but I'd like to see some eight-year term for the Toronto Maple Leafs. We haven't really got into, like, training camp is around the corner. It's sneaking up on us. It's August 22nd. There's still some big questions for these Maple Leafs. Who was floating the idea that we shouldn't be worried all summer? Where did that where did that all come I from? Know. I don't remember because it got so, broken telephoned a little bit. That it was it, just there in the top drawer. Yeah, Matthew's it was just contract. like, oh, don't worry about Matthews. No problem whatsoever. Then things kind of cool down over the summer. We get no news. Fewer people are talking about it. I mean, maybe the training camp, hey, look at the contract. Celebratory time. We want Austin Matthews to be in Toronto when we announce this. I don't know. But we are, we, and do it we, are, we are really close to this, the time where we're like, okay, what's going on here with Austin Matthews? The William Nylander thing, I wouldn't expect that to be resolved. 
But if we don't have Austin Matthews contract, day one of training camp concludes without a contract. It's going to be trouble. it's going to be suddenly real noisy around these parts. We were also disappointed last night uh, watching the Baltimore Ravens blow the craziest preseason stretch of any team ever. One of the craziest records in all of sports, actually. Twenty four consecutive preseason wins. They lost at the hands of the Washington Commanders in the dying minutes, dying yeah, seconds minute of drill. the game. Twenty nine, twenty eight, but twenty nine, twenty eight for a preseason game is pretty fun. I mean, I watched. Was pretty good. I watched some of that game. Like it was, it was a high level preseason game. I was pretty shocked. Uh, I mean, I guess I shouldn't be because it was teed up as, hey, this team has won twenty four straight times mm-hmm. and they want to keep winning. And this team, the Washington Commanders, for whatever reason, was real interested in beating them. It's funny how it works out, right? Like there's actually some narrative to a preseason a game, and it's on Monday Night Football, of course. Like maybe they rose to the occasion just a little bit, but no like, Jays game, so everybody in like this area, all of Canada was watching quality quarter. <laughs> quarterbacking play like it was it was a it was a pretty high level game it got me pretty excited about yeah. uh uh the nfl season quickly approaching here but yeah both teams wanted to win that game and you get a scoreline like 28 29 28 i mean i think that says something about the quality of the game also john harbaugh speaking after we have like that I, clip actually. i kind of get it now because he was pretty pissed off that they didn't win that game do you want to play john's clip john harbaugh okay this is him post game preseason games that people want to write write about some of you in here say they don't mean anything because you never played the game. You never were out there in a preseason game. You never were fighting for a spot on the field. And yet you have the audacity to say that the effort that somebody puts into that to win and fight and win a game like that is meaningless. Tell me it was meaningless out there what you just saw. If you like football, is that a meaningless football game? I can't respect anybody that says that. It doesn't matter win or loss. And John, John wanted number 25. Oh, yeah. Pretty obvious. Who didn't? The Washington Commanders. The Washington Commanders. They were, they were dead set. Was that like the best win in Commander's history? No, because you know what? I was listening to Fan Morning Show this morning with Daniele and Gunner, and they brought up two other times, and I forget them both, when the Commanders ended a streak. It yeah, was, but not a streak like this one. Well, it was a winning streak in two Eagles last year. Okay, they so they beat, the, they, beat the, they beat the Eagles last year. I guess you could celebrate that, but like it amounted to nothing. Whatever, win's a win. No, this one's all, I, of course, I'm just being facetious. <laughs> I think I'm being facetious. Well, no, this is a, this was a record, like 25, you end it, you stop it in their tracks. It's like the biggest, as you said, the biggest, it's a big one of the win. biggest streaks in sports history. And okay, so it. they just have like the knack for this, right? They have the knack for uh, ending streaks, getting big victories, getting few victories, but mm-hmm. the ones that they do get are big even Not in the important. preseason. Yeah. I don't know. It was it was billed as, hey, they care about this. And maybe that's the Eric Bieniemy thing. Maybe people need to get yelled at. That was the Bieniemy story where he was just like mean to everyone. Yeah. I was watching a little NFL maybe they need Network a little of that. this morning. And uh, my guy, Mike McDaniels, Ugh. he's already irking me. He's just like a little skeevy. He is you skeevy. Know? He just, I think he's my least favorite. Wait, what was he into? I don't, just everything he says on the. Just his general vibe. His vibe. Yes, he, do, he does vibe. give, he does give He's off talking a about like how vibe. he can't wait to be 65 years old because like, isn't that when you get like social security in the United States? Like he's just like a weirdo. He's a weird dude. I don't know where they got Mike McDaniel. Maybe a video room somewhere. Oh, I don't think. Just they, no lawsuits involving Mike McDaniel. Not that we know of at least. Um, okay. We'll talk some lawsuits. We'll talk some scandal after the break. With Doug Smith, we'll get back into this Toronto Raptors uh, accusations that are they're quite they're quite intense, and they could be um, really lasting uh, impl- implications for Darko, who hasn't even coached his first head coaching role with the Toronto Raptors. It might not even happen. I'm not sure he will.
Doug Smith will help break it down with us on the other side of the break on Fan Drive Time with Justin and Ailish. Unrivaled insight, analysis, and opinions on all things Blue Jays. Blair and Barker. Be sure to subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Fan drive time, Justin and Ailish, Sportsnet 590, the fan filling in for our guy, Ben Ennis, this week. And we got some real stuff to unpack. Your we Toronto got an interesting Raptors. one here. It's nice to get news, but is this the news you want? I'm not sure. <laughs> Let's talk to Doug Smith of the Toronto Star. Doug, you're brushing up on your legal jargon the last couple of hours? <laughs> This is supposed to be the nice downtime for patio stools and decks. This is not supposed to be trying to figure out what legalese is in a lawsuit. That's for sure. All right. So what have you figured out about this uh, pending uh, or this, I guess, not even pending, this lawsuit that's been delivered to the Raptors MLSC front office? I think um, I think it's like Shakespeare said, a lot of sound and fury signifying nothing. I think he had an overzealous guy who got a job with the Raptors from the Knicks, and he went a little bit too far and what he did to please his new bosses. I don't think there's any nefarious deeds done by the Raptors. I read the lawsuit. The NBA knows about it. The Raptors knew about it last, that the, the incident occurred last Thursday. I think when this is all said and over, a guy we never knew is not going to work here. Okay, so no no grand conspiracy, no lack of work ethic from Darko, no reason to take this the extra mile. It's just... One guy kind of going going the extra mile uh, when he shouldn't have. I mean, I mean, it, it, it is strange though, right? Because like, I don't know. It, it, do you leave the Knicks for the Raptors? Is this some great promotion? The 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 circumstances in which you know there was like a little bit of a time period. The Raptors didn't you know announce anything. I can't find him on a website. Like there is a lot of weirdness when you try to unpack this story. But again, we are talking about a low level employee, and I guess. When you're a low-level employee, there's not a lot of information on you anyway. If you're a mid-level basketball ops guy in the NBA in any of the 30 franchises, no one knows your name except the guys you work with and people in the light job of the other 29 teams. Raptors have probably eight guys in their video department. I don't know, seven of them. I wouldn't know Ike Alazam uh, from Adam. And I bet you no one else, I bet you half the people in the organization wouldn't either. So the fact that they didn't announce this hiring is nothing. That's not a big deal at all. It's not something they would announce. Um, uh, you leave the Knicks for the Raptors? Well, who's had the biggest success over the last decade? Mm-hmm. You come to a, a yeah. franchise with a new start, getting a new start with a new front, new coaching staff, and a whole new basketball ops staff? Or do you stay with the Knicks? I don't know. Do you get paid more to play to work in Toronto than you do with New York? Are the Knicks uh, a well-run, well-oiled machine under James Dolan? I don't think so. So I think I look for look for a new job, got it, and probably went a little bit too far to uh, to get it. And again, I I don't I know Darko pretty well. I've spoken to dozens and dozens of people who know him here, back home, and in Memphis and around the NBA. He's not going to go and, and pluck some mid-level basketball ops guy from the Knicks to spy for him. This is ridiculous on its face. Mm-hmm. This is like Law and Order episode. <laughs> Dark was the last thing is a lazy guy or not connected in mm-hmm. basketball. If he wanted, the funny thing is the, the, the scouting reports, I read the lawsuit this morning again. The scouting report said so the scouting reports were for 
games against Dallas, uh, play calls. Well, they give the ball to Doncic a lot. Uh, there was game 82 against the Pacers. All the Pacers beat the Knicks by seven that night. And there was a, a Denver scouting report. Well, they, the Nuggets beat the Knicks two times last year. If you're going to get stuff from a team, get stuff that's going to help you. <laughs> okay, so like we had like uh, like uh, Ike, maybe we've gone too far because we were thinking, hey, if Dark goes behind this, he might not coach a game for the Toronto Raptors. But I, I guess we got to cool our jets a little bit on that, and we were going through sort of some of the theories, right? Is Masai Ujiri sneaky, sneaky? Is Darko not prepared to be a head coach? We can just as deduce, I guess, that Azatam just not a not a bright bulb, like not a smart guy, not a guy that made the right moves here. Uh, and I think you know, until we're told otherwise, I guess we should go with that theory. I do want to ask you because you said you know Darko pretty well. Mm. Like, what strikes you about Darko Rayakovich? What kind of coach are the Raptors getting? It's been a while since we talked about him, but we're on the cusp of you know the season starting or training camps beginning. We've gone through summer league. What kind of guy is this? Uh, how would you? Sum up the Darko Ryakovich experience that you've had. I think he he likes to he likes to instruct and likes to teach a lot. I think he's very calm, uh, and I think that might be good around the franchise after the last four or five years. I also think that he is he's super organized, and I think he wants to foster a very good family feeling around the team, a good vibe where he cares about the players and their families. Not but not unlike what San Antonio does when they sort of embrace everything and he and the players got to get over themselves and you got to care about the players as humans and then get the most out of them as athletes and i think that's what he wants to do and i think that's what his skill set sets up you know again i've i've talked to him a few times I, i've talked to thousands hundreds of people who know him dozens of people who know him very very well and i think that's his strength is that the calm atmosphere around the team will be much more it'll be a gentler after organization and i think last year they lurched from they didn't hate each other, but they got tired of each other. And I don't think mm -hmm. that's going to happen with this group. So Darko Ryakovich's new face, but not just him. I think he named at least eight new assistants or uh, I feel like a full line change of those that <laughs> yeah, worked yeah. in the Raptors. So there probably are some challenges with that. But, you know, you bring up maybe a different vibe, a different perspective. Um, when you look at a completely different bench and a com uh, completely different, um, I guess, approach to basketball, uh, where do you think we're going to see that the quickest when we look at this new Raptors uh season ahead like are we going to notice right away hey this is a completely different format this is a different system that he's doing and this is a way that the team has you know been built differently um, when you look at his uh, upcoming opportunity to coach the Raptors and his first impression where do you think we'll see that most I think you're going to see them they're going to play probably a more much more traditional style of basketball I don't think you'll see them be the kind of scrambling gambling shoot the passing lane defense that they played under Nick for the last two years I think they'll be more much more conventional in that regard I think he would like to see them have a lot more ball movement and player movement, and the ball won't. They won't. There may not be a traditional point guard as such. There'll be there'll be a lot of movement and flow to the offense, but you won't see a lot of Fred VanVleet, Jakob Pertl pick and rolls anymore because you don't have Fred VanVleet, and I don't think that's the style he plays. Um, you know, he didn't he didn't handle his responsibilities in Memphis were 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 a lot of uh, a lot to do with their offense, and they they developed a group thing. In offense, and John Morant was the leader of that pack, of course, but he also didn't play a lot of games. And that team, you know, they ran the ball through Dylan Brooks a little bit. They ran it through Darren Jackson Jr. a little bit. Uh, you're going to see a bunch of. It's going to be a different look, I think, to the way the Raptors played from the last two years.
Uh, we're chatting with Doug Smith of the Toronto Star, who's, uh, you know, not uh, completely buying into alarms sounding due to this uh, lawsuit presented you to You went to law school quickly MLSC last night online. the Toronto Raptors. So <laughs> important, but let, let's see if I can sound an alarm here. Where, where does Pascal Siakam fit into Darko's plans this year and maybe beyond that? Well, I think, he's, I think Pascal's the most accomplished player on the team, and I think it would be foolish for a coach not to try to get the most out of him. I do think his ball handling and his passing have to improve a little bit. Uh, I don't think you're going to see the offense run through him with the ball all that much, but I think you're going to see him be uh, probably more of a point forward than he might have been last year. But, you know, obviously they got to use him. He's the best He's the best player on the team. You know, he's a two-time All-NBA guy, and until Scotty Barnes gets some consistency, Pascal's the best player you got, and you got to take advantage of that. I don't think he's that... I don't think they're going to trade him in the next 10 days or the next 10 weeks because I don't think you're going to, I, you want your best player to be your best player. And I think under Darko, you're going to let him do that. Is it that simple though? I mean, we did hear tons of trade speculation, right? We, I don't know oh, if it was oh, just no question. the Atlanta Hawks just driving all that. Maybe that's the case, uh, but it just seems like we reached some sort of weird inflection point with Pascal Siakam this year. Uh, or this summer, rather, like, was do you think it was external factors mainly driving this conversation, or was there reason for Masai Ujiri to seriously explore moving him? You know, given where the Raptors are on their timeline. Oh, I think you had to look at it, and I'm, I'm sure around June and right up to free agency, they would have taken calls and and explored many options. I think uh, Atlanta was obviously in play. I think Orlando probably called. I know Indiana had to sniff around a little bit, so it, it wouldn't be. You know, the Raptors have missed the playoffs through the last three years and were 41 and 41 last year. You're not, this is not a, a championship level team, but so you have to investigate how to improve it. Pascal, the way his salary is structured, his age, his place in the league, the year left of his contract might have yielded the greatest return. So you would have to explore options. But I think those options have dried up in early June, early July. And since then, you know, when I was in summer league for the week there in July, there was nothing going on. It was over. Obviously, they talked to teams. They talked to teams about a lot of guys. They talked to teams about Pascal, maybe more seriously than OG or Chris Boucher or somebody like that. But they, there wasn't anything that they thought made the team better, so they didn't do it. And now they're, let's go. Here's, here's our team. Let's see how it works in November and December. Uh, assuming for Pascal, priority one is making all NBA so he can make the most contract when he signs his next contract. Uh, is Toronto the best place for him? Like he, we know he was reluctant to move because he has, still has an affinity for Toronto. Maybe that's because he thinks that's where he can have the most success, at least individually or statistically. But is that the case? Like when you look at what Darko has planned, is Pascal going to be in a position in your mind to fight for all NBA honors? Oh, I think he's always going to be in a discussion. I, I'm not sure that the numbers, the stats, the points, the rebounds matter as much as the team success matters. A guy like Jalen Brown is all NBA guy, max contract. Well, he, he might have been the second best player on his team, but his team won a lot. And that kind of got him more accolades and more recognition. You know, Jalen Brown, is he's, he's him and Pascal, I think, are contemporaries. Jalen doesn't dribble the ball particularly well. He scores a lot, but his team has the greater success. And I think if the Raptors can somehow come out and win 47, 48, 49 games, Pascal will be central for that and will certainly be in the conversation for all NBA at the end of next season.
chatting with Doug Smith of the Toronto Star. Um, okay, so Raptors basketball is still around the corner, but the FIBA World Cup begins Friday in Indonesia, yeah. Japan, and the Philippines. And I know you had a really nice, like, a cheat sheet. Everything you need to know about the FIBA World Cup, uh, you posted that <laughs> yesterday, uh, or today, actually, um, this morning. So it's a really great uh, look around for a tournament that Canada has now changed, uh, maybe uh, changed, like, what their outlook will be, of course, with Jamal Murray's decision to not um, join the team. So where were you at with Jamal Murray uh, and his decision to continue this offseason and, and continue to rehab and, and I guess catch up on all the time that he had missed and rest a bit. I know a lot of fans were originally a little bit upset about it. Uh, a lot upset about a it. A lot upset about it. But is there like an understanding that this guy, you know, had been through a lot and he just won a championship and maybe it's best for him in his NBA career to not join? Yeah, I don't think it was totally unexpected. Like I think you know, him coming to camp was a sign that he's, he, he wants to be involved in the program. I don't think his body is ready for the grind of what a FIBA competition is like. And I think he tried to make it work. And I know they had the Denver doctors were involved, the Denver medical staff, athletic training staff from the Nuggets was here. The Raptors are the Canada basketball people are top notch and they tried to make it happen and they couldn't. And that I, I get that people say, well, he quit on the team. He doesn't want to play. Uh, I, I think, if he could have played, he would have, but I don't think physically he was ready to go. And I don't. I think he would have been cheating himself, his NBA team, and maybe Canada basketball a little bit. And I think he made the wise decision for him right now. But I do think if they get to the Olympics, you're going to see him on the team. And I think that's why he's, he's wanted to keep his ties with this organization, Canada basketball organization, very, very tight. And yeah, and I do appreciate that, right? I, I do appreciate the interest. I do appreciate that'll be here when it matters the most. But it might be the same old story where, hey, uh, you didn't have enough horses to get there, so there was there was no reason right. to even feign that, not even feign that interest because that's that's not fair. But to have that interest uh, in the Olympics when that might not be uh, a possibility without yeah, Murray. And without that backcourt, that could be uh, unparalleled at this tournament. Like, how much does it impact Canada's chances of having a great tournament and actually accomplishing what we've been waiting for? Well, it's going to be you know far more. You're 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 a far worse basketball team with Jamal Murray not on it than you would be if he was on it. No question about it. But I still still think Canada is. They they could be the second best team from FIBA. They are the second best team from FIBA Americas. Whether that's enough to get them. To the spot in the tournament where they have to be because only two of them, Spain and France, can go through the quarterfinals. And that's a very tough nut to crack. The victory over Spain notwithstanding, they're the number one team in the world for a reason. France is always good. They've been on the medal podium, I think, the last two World Cups. So that that's going to be a big challenge to get there. But if they get to the quarterfinals, then, then I think you're going to see them probably win that and have two shots to play for a medal, which is unprecedented in Canadian history. And that will get them to the Olympics. And again, I, again, I know no one wants to think about this because it's, it would it sort of defeat this attitude. But if they don't get there this year, there will be another one of those last ditch mm-hmm. qualification tournaments next spring, their next, next summer to play before they go to Paris, like there was in Victoria in twenty twenty in twenty twenty one, twenty twenty rather. So it, it possibility exists absent of this year, but this is when they really should do it because it sets everything up, gives you a year to market it a year to get ready for it. it energizes all the Canadian players who want to play in it. And I think this is, this is the time they got to strike. They really have to. Do you think that factors into Jamal Murray's decision just a little bit that there is a fallback plan? I think he knew it was there. Yeah. I think there was a, there was a, a bad plan B, but a plan B nonetheless. And we'll see what happens at the end of this 
going into next year where everybody is. Because if the Nuggets win another NBA championship and he plays in mid-June, we might be looking at the mm-hmm. same thing next year. So without Jamal Murray on the roster, uh, I guess there's uh, the positive spin is there's uh, a room for some people to make a name for themselves, maybe to elevate their game to help uh, offset the loss of an NBA champ. So who do you look forward to seeing have that opportunity this time around um, as the tournament kicks off on Friday? I think we all know that, that Shea Gillis, Alexander, and R.J. Barrett are the two scorers and the two guys. Uh, Telly Olenek and Joy Powell are absolutely top-notch team of big men. I think the interesting guy, to me, is going to be Nikhil Alexander-Walker because he's going to have to play a lot of minutes. He showed him in the playoffs last year with Minnesota a little bit that he can be a lockdown defender. And I think that's going to be – he's going to be a key because lessening the backcourt with Jamal not in it, it opens up role and minutes for a guy like Nikhil, who's young, but I think is a really good basketball player. And I think he's going to have to step up and take on a lot of responsibility – for guarding the best player on the other team. Doug, we appreciate you jumping on uh, this afternoon. I feel smarter and more at peace <laughs> with the understanding of this well, pending I lawsuit. <laughs> I can't believe that for a second, but I appreciate that. I'm going to go get to my law books and try to pass the bar tomorrow morning. <laughs> best of luck. Uh, <laughs> thanks, I nev- Doug. I nev- and I never pass a bar. <laughs> I love that. Good one. <laughs> thanks, Doug. Appreciate it. Enjoy uh, the tournament kicking off Friday. All right. Take care. Thanks very much. That's Doug Smith of the Toronto Star. Okay, uh, so maybe Polar, Dar- we, maybe Darko we reacted. came out hot to start the show, and we look like maybe woo, we maybe he coaches for the Toronto Raptors after yeah, all. That was. I funny. mean, I, I still think it's a pretty big issue. I agree, but I mean, and if it's the good things in that- the lawsuit are true, where you open two thousand files from this guy were opened by Darko or his <laughs> his closest c- confidants, like that looks really bad, right? I it mean, looks really yeah, bad. Like if you, but not everything in the lawsuit is is true. Yeah, I guess that's Doug an important that. point. I mean, we came on to start the show, and uh, oh, I was like, what an embarrassment. They'll never coach this team. So now we can take a deep breath because maybe we just got excited about news. And maybe, that happens. Maybe. That happens. I mean, okay, how about this? What if tables were turned and you found out today that Nick Nurse was being sued by the Raptors for taking all of this private secret top, you know, oh, Philly would handle that well. Uh, oh, Philly's a disaster. Actually, anyway. might gain some street cred in Philly for that. True, but like he stole all this stuff. He took with him a staffer, and now we're finding out that he's got every piece of information that MLSE ever did. We'd be well, so angry. Here's why it's different, though. Nick Nurse would have created all that himself. That is Nick Nurse's database, right? But like, he, okay, so he I, takes a, a staffer. I don't know where intellectual property, like who it belongs to, MLC, Raptors, whatever. Nick Nurse just has to like get up and everything. Yeah. And this happens, right? Where like if you wrote or you were on a TV show or whatever, mm-hmm. you give up that because it belongs to the company that you work for, whatever. But like Nick Nurse would a know all that stuff. B have designed all that stuff already, or at least been a part of the process, putting together all the notes on all the active players and teams in the NBA because he's been coaching the team for so long. So I'd be like, well, it's kind of his. Yeah, you took it too literally. I meant like he stole something from Toronto. I guess the thing with Darko, yes, stole the banner. I, 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 get, I get where you, <laughs> I, you wanted to slam Nick Nurse. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. I guess the thing with Darko is like it is a first-time guy. Yeah. It is no, a guy no. putting together a new staff. There is, like, he gets shows up at the office, nothing on the computer, right? Like, what do you... It's like, like you set got, password. Oh, I got to fill out all this name. stuff myself. <laughs> Let's hire someone from the New York Knicks to just steal it. Like, that. that's why the story had a little bit extra yeah. to it. It was exciting for a minute. But if he's the guy that puts all the work in and it's not a thing he and he didn't open the emails and this guy just went rogue, then maybe that's how it is. But I still feel like... 
if there's proof that he looked at all these emails, opened 2,000 files, it's it, it kind of stinks. December I still 1st. Think it stinks. December 1st, Raptors and Knicks. That'll be a must see TV. I wonder, what, I wonder what Ike. They'll all have the will same doing, game plan. On that night. Yeah. <laughs> It'll just be running. There'll be just like yeah. no movement on the there'll court. Be, there'll be no separating those two It'll teams. It'll be two mirrored images going head to head. Like, anyone going to take the ball? We, we know what play you're going to do. Mm-hmm. God, it'll be good. They play four times this year. I can't wait. <laughs> December 1st, December 11th, January 20th, and March 27th. Maybe Dark will have just a good laugh that night, and it won't be a thing. I hope he does. We did come out hot. It's pretty funny. Ben's going to be... Ben? Ben's going to be embarrassed. He's like, you guys went on my show and said what you said. (laughs) Um, You guys took that literally? You mentioned Philly. Um, Well, James Harden fined $100,000 for his recent comments uh, towards Daryl Morey, calling him a liar, etc. Why? Why? I guess you can't you can't say those things, Justin. No, <laughs> hundred thousand dollars is like a drop in the what is it? A drop in the a bucket bucket for James o- over under a hundred thousand dollar fine levied to the Toronto Raptors for all this. I'd say over. Like even if it's nothing, if it, it's if it, st- like if even if this guy went rogue, right? He still yeah. belongs to the Raptors. There still has to be some sort of punishment, right? That's a and lot the punishment's of money. on old Ike. Like Ike's not working in the NBA again. I don't think. If he went rogue and did this all by himself, the Raptors still have to pay a penalty, I think. And it'll be over 100000 It should be. James Harden just called a, a co-worker There was a, liar. a fine last year. Did Mark Cuban get fined a bunch of times? He got fined $600,000 once. So I think it could happen. I think it's over one hundred for sure. Stay but tuned. I mean, they'll, they'll just, the boys will just have a laugh about it. It's not a big deal. Darko had no idea. Oh, goodness. Um... All right, I have some picks for tonight. Do you? I know we don't do a wake and rake, but I just, you I just needed need to get to it in there. need to scratch the itch? I needed to get there in there. Just because, a drop in the bucket to your... I mean, tonight's a huge game. We've been teeing this up all afternoon, and we're going to continue with Blair and Barker minus Barker after us at 5 p.m. leading into the Blue Jays game with Yusei Kikuchi on the mound. But this means a lot to the Toronto Blue Jays. It obviously means a lot to the Orioles, but this is a, a statement series. Um, and Kikuchi on the mound, I love him over 6.5 Ks. I love that. Also parlayed with Ryan Mountcastle over one and a half bases. They, two things can be true. That together is plus five fifty. Like, what are you? Why are you not betting that? Team bet. I'm there with you. Five fifty plus five fifty. Kikuchi over K's and Mountcastle over bases. Like it's and he's going to get this first hit and he's going <laughs> to probably get a triple. And then Kikuchi will, you know what? What he does third fourth inning gain yeah. some steam pitches into the sixth inning. Mountcastle Easy double seven machine K's. and whatever. Like the, they still win. But okay, that's the four far parlay. I, I like kind of like it. I just like it a little little two header. Good thing is we can kind of rebrand. It's the four far parlay. <laughs> not to be mine. Wake and rake in the morning. It's yours. No, I'm just tailing you. Um, can I leave you with another thing? to ponder i do i've been waiting for this all show okay all afternoon really this is how it's presented a well-connected new york city radio host his name is craig carton craig carton yep yeah according to craig carton the super bowl halftime show is considering a boy band halftime show featuring nsync backstreet boys 98 degrees boys to men color me bad possibly a k-pop group and more I'm intrigued. Then that would be amazing. I'm intrigued. I gotta Justin. say, I'm a, I'm a little bit intrigued. That I would be do, amazing. I could do away with 98 degrees. Like, what do they bring to the really table? That just through them. association with you they're know, just, they're like, we need to fill sometime. Just is that Nick Lachey? Is 98 degrees? Um, I think it is. Anyway, I don't yeah, want anything Nick to do Andrew with Nick Andrew Lachey, right? Let's let's 98 degrees. No no spot for me. But if it's Backstreet Boys, NSYNC going back and forth. Wow. And boys to men. 
Don't forget boys to boys men. Boys to men, can, they can hang too. Yeah, that is. And K-pop's And throw hot. a little K-pop, K-pop in there. I don't hot. know much about K-pop, but it's a little, you know, a K-pop change K-pop is, uh, like, is uniting the world. Like, it's a South Korean um, type of music. And I've been to South Korea, and I saw a K-pop band there. Okay. And it is now, sp- like, spreading like wildfire. So it'd be an amazing way to get more uh, viewers as well. But Backstreet Boys, NSYNC. I'm surprisingly down. Okay, I'm I think glad I saved it for the end so we can ponder that moving forward because it's not going to be Taylor Swift. She's like, no, thanks, I don't need you. Craig Carton. Wow, Mr. newsbreaker. Mr. Craig Carton. He's got it in with the Backstreet Boys? Maybe. He hears things rumbling around the streets in New York. Could be something there. Finger on the pulse. All right, Blue Jays kick off an important three-game set against the Baltimore Orioles tonight. Kikuchi on the mound. They're looking to stop this bad, bad narrative that they can't beat. The young, hot Orioles. And and coinciding with keeping pace with the Seattle Mariners and the Houston Astros. It is dicey in the wild card hunt and the wins and important games. They need to happen right now. Blair and Barker will take you into tonight's game on Sportsnet and Sportsnet 590 fan. Justin and I will be back tomorrow to hopefully celebrate another Kikuchi ace night on the mound. Chat with you tomorrow.